This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The onset of the COVID-19 epidemic forced the global economy to shut down in a matter of weeks. Despite being in lockdown and not working themselves, many Americans were surprised to find shortages of essential products in their local stores. This disconnect between the experience of citizen as consumer and citizen as producer revealed the confidence we share that our global supply chains will endure regardless of the magnitude of the disruption. This confidence in our systems seems justified now that more than 18 months into the pandemic that has spared no country on earth, supplies of goods have largely returned to normal. How did the global economy continue to get products to consumers through a pandemic? And who are the experts who will ensure we endure the next global catastrophe? My guest today is Yossi Sheffi, the Elijah Gray Professor of Engineering at Systems at MIT, where he serves as director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. He's an expert in systems optimization, risk analysis, and supply chain management, and the author of seven books, including The New Abnormal and A Shot in the Arm, How Science, Engineering, and Supply Chains Converge to Vaccinate the World. Professor Sheffi will share with us his views on how the pandemic created a natural experiment that both tested the resiliency of our supply chains, while also providing a catalyst for scientists, private industry leaders, and government policymakers to coordinate the creation, production, and distribution of effective vaccines. When I return, I'll be joined by MIT professor Yossi Sheffi. Hubwonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization that relies on your support. Please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax-deductible donation today. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by MIT professor Yossi Sheffi. Welcome to Hubwonk, Professor Sheffi. Thanks for having me, Joe. I've read your uh, uh, most recent two books, and I have far too many questions for you for a half hour, but uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, let's, For the benefit of our listeners, what is supply chain management? And if you will, give us an example uh, of a product or a company for which uh, uh, supply chain management, uh, good supply chain management is essential. Well, first of all, there is no product on earth for which supply chain management is not essential. I mean, it's a, when you, when you, go to buy something right now for Christmas and you don't find it, you, you realize how essential supply chain is. Every product, if you think about what is supply chain, think about what, what it takes to have a product on your shelf. So the product is on the shelf in a toy store. It comes from a warehouse. It comes from a, a manufacturing plant. The manufacturing plant has to make the product. So it has um, suppliers that supply all kinds of parts that come into the product, but these suppliers also have suppliers that, that supply part, and these supplier also have suppliers. At the end, you come to one of two places. Either you come to a mine or to agricultural field when this when, when the process starts. Thinking about the whole networks upon networks of companies involved in supplying 
the material, the parts, the uh, the distribution of the finished product, all the uh, in in addition to the manufacture, all the transportation companies, the warehouse companies, the the uh, custom uh, management company when you have to cross borders, all of this involved in the management of the supply chain, the management of the process to bring you material from the time that it's just some earth in the mine or some you know, iron ore to the time that it's a finished product being an automobile or a toy or an iPhone. All of this process is supply chain management. Managing this process is what supply chain management is about. I'm reminded when you when you speak. I don't know if this is part of your curriculum, but the uh, the epic essay by uh, Leonard Reed, uh, "I Pencil," where he describes just to make a simple pencil it involves sort of the coordination of millions of people around the world, none of whom understand how to make a, a pencil in its entirety, but all must come together for the most simple object uh, that a first grader needs on his first day of school. There's, a, there's another book, "Travels of a T-shirt," that talks about what it takes from the cotton that's grown in Texas to be weaved in. Uh, you know, somewhere in, in Southeast Asia to be dyed somewhere in, uh, in South America to be cut and put together and then come to a store uh, in the U.S. It crisscrossed the world several times before it gets to. So it, it's right. Lots of people are involved in making any of this product. Now, as an expert in the field, um, does does the science of supply chain management really involve understanding the world as it is and optimizing uh, existing systems, or does it set out to redesign uh, global systems in a way that might be more efficient, more resilient? Uh, is it is it a design or or more of a, a comprehensive understanding? Uh, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> look, in order to be of look, as in the engineer, as an engineer. You're always trying to improve something. You're always trying to build a better mousetrap. You start to build something better. But in order to do it, you have to understand the systems as they are. Because, for example, particularly with systems like supply chains, they involve not only processes and technology and trucks and warehouse, they involve people. The most element, the most important element of the system are people. So you need to understand how they behave. You need to understand the various cultures around the world. You need to understand the various uh, legal regime around the world. All these require people. And so the combination of people and processes and technology is what makes it so fascinating, so hard to understand and even harder to improve. But it is always a challenge. So when we talk about the challenge, I assume we're talking about the challenge of disruption, meaning uh, we expect things to arrive on the shelves and sometimes they don't. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges to supply chain? What, 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 when you do your planning, what are some of the, the, uh, the things beyond the, the uh, uncertainty of people? Uh, what can go wrong? Okay. As I always say, say when I talk to supply chain management audience, and I always do, and I wrote three books on uh, risk and disruptions uh, and resilience, three of my seven books on this, uh, on this subject, then and this is what gives you job security. Because if everything works the way it's intended, who needs you? Mm -hmm. But when you do something that crosses the globe, that goes through multiple borders, that uh, goes through dozens of companies, each one of them has to work. The chain is only as strong as its weakest link, as we know. 
So everything has to work. In order, and, and invariably, things go wrong. Sometimes it's big, like, of course, the pandemic is huge. Sometimes it's, you know, good size, like the, you know, Japanese tsunami and uh, an earthquake. Sometimes it makes the headline, but it's not that big, like a ship get caught in the, you know, in the Suez Canal. You know, it's a, it makes a good video. So that's why people were so excited about it. But at the end of the day, come on, it's not, uh, nobody's going to starve because there's a ship stuck in the Suez Canal. There are ways around it. So, but disruptions help all the time, especially when you optimize the system to be very connected to each other. And, you know, the uh, Toyota manufacturing system and the just-in-time, which everybody's talking about it now, makes the system actually very connected to each other. And for example, when you have to get into an automotive manufacturing plant, staff have to arrive in 15 minutes interval. Not before, not after. Before, there'll be congestion in the yard. After, the line will have to stop. So it has to be exact. Invariably, it's not. I mean, it's a, life happens. You know, congestion happens, you know, storms happen, hurricanes happen all the time. So disruptions are continuous phenomena. They happen all, all the time. Some of them are bigger than others. And for relatively small disruption, it's easy to deal with. You keep a little bit of stock, a little bit of uh, in inventory, you deal with it. For larger disruptions, like we have now, there's actually no specific solution. We are learning as we are doing. Companies are learning as we are doing because it is global and there's no amount of inventory that could, uh, no reasonable amount of inventory that could isolate a company from having disruptions like we have today because it's not only supply disruption when factories are closed, ports are congested, but it's huge demand. There's a, Total imbalance between demand and supply. So, and for a variety of reasons, we can go into it, but it's it's huge demand, and that's the crux of a problem. So, I do want to talk about um, uh, COVID nineteen and it, it being a an extraordinary uh, disruption. Uh, but when we are uh, talking with supply chain uh, experts, fellow experts, or or students, how does one balance uh, the need for resiliency with with cost and efficiency? In other words, you describe ways around uh, disruptions if a if a ship gets caught in the Suez Canal. Uh, we can find resources everywhere, but that comes with a cost. As you say, there's a cost of holding inventory or having some redundant systems, extra warehouse space. Um, how do we, we weigh the cost of uh, the need for resiliency with against the need for uh, efficiency and, and, and lower costs? That's why I like to talk to supply chain managers rather than the media, because <laughs> the, the media usually look for the silver bullet, the solution. There's no solution. It's a balance. The question of, I mean, how much life insurance are you, Joe, willing to buy? I mean, it's a balance. How much risk you're willing to take? I mean, it's, it's the same thing with everybody, with supply chain. It's a, how much are you willing to pay for how much security, uh, if you want. Having enough inventory to protect against um, what we have now, against the shortages, is something that will drive you out of business. You cannot do it. There's no warehouse space to, to, to hold all this inventory. So it's not gonna, it's not realistic. Um, the answer is by and large, you have to have some redundancy, but not too much. 
And the, there are ways of actually having, let's say, even some inventory, more than you think you need, and still not have a problem. Let me just explain it a little more because that's a very important point. The problem with inventory is not the cost. The cost of inventory is relatively low. The problem with inventory, as was proven, is it leads you to low quality product. Because what happened is, is let's say there's a bad part, you discover it only very late after you work a lot of cars on the, uh, on the assembly line, for example. Instead, if you have low inventory, you discover it immediately, you stop the line, you fix the problem. It's also too easy if you see um, a defective part to get another one from the pile, if you have a big pile, rather than go ahead and solve the problem. Toyota has proven it, that it is a way to make quality cars. And it's not, the, the, the uh, lower costs come as a result of this. It's not leading. Because you have quality cars, you, don't have, you have less warranty problem. You have less rework on the line. You have good, uh, even good marketing, good uh, um, reputation. So, so you sell more. So your costs go down. The cost is a result of this. The uh, cost to go down. So I don't think you should keep a lot of inventory. You should keep some, enough to catch your breath, enough to deal with small, um, small disruption. Another thing that you have when you have just in time is that you have very strong connection between the company with its customer and with its supplier. So you can respond quickly, much quicker to problems because the chain has to respond, not only a company has to respond. So there are a lot of good things that happen with uh, what people call just-in-time, which is really the Toyota production system beyond just low cost of inventory. So I companies, so companies should, should keep a balance. Let me just finish with one example. Toyota itself, after the Japanese disaster, realized that semiconductors is a problem because semiconductor, the companies cannot increase production. Capacity is limited. So they started having Toyota. The originator of the just-in-time started to have an inventory of semiconductors. And it actually, when the market went up in the beginning of, two, beginning of this year, January, February, once the vaccine started working, the market went up. In Q2 and Q3, second quarter and third quarter of this year, of 2021, Toyota, for the first time ever, sold more cars in the US than General Motors because they had inventory. But guess what? Around the, before the end of Q3, they announced a 40% cut in production. It caught up with them. There are only so much that even Toyota can keep. But I'm saying they were interesting. They were thinking people. They were not, it's not a religion that uh, you have to decide. And it's not the same for every product. There's some product you should keep, some product you should not. There's a lot of consideration that goes, how many other people can make this product? Where are they? A lot of consideration that uh, allow you to keep low inventory. So you've talked about a, a terrific uh, supply chain uh, success story, Toyota, and, and even they don't uh, um, uh, entirely believe in just in time for all elements of their product. Let's talk about some failures. Uh, bring us up to up to date on COVID nineteen. Some of the earliest failures, uh, and sort of take apart where where supply chain management could have could have uh, either helped or um, 
or with the cause of the problem. We talked early on with the uh, toilet paper or um, even produce. Were those uh, just, in a, sen in a sense, inevitable uh, victims of uh, a shock in, in demand? What could a, a supply chain manager, manager have done better uh, in those products? Okay, I'll give you a different answer. Supply <laughs> chain manager could not have done better. They did unbelievably well. Let's talk, uh, toilet paper was something that started, I talk about it in, in my book, I actually investigated what happened to toilet paper. It started in Taiwan, when people believed that the same material that goes to masks goes to toilet paper. Despite what the government said, they started holding toilet paper, the media picked it up and everybody started holding toilet paper. So there was not enough capacity uh, uh, in the marketplace. But in terms of saying how supply chain worked in general, think about the food, you say produce, think about the food. Amazingly, in March, from March last year, from one day to the next, restaurants were closed, university was closed, industrial park was closed. All the people that buy in bulk were closed. Yet, you didn't go hungry. I didn't go hungry. The media sometimes say, oh, there's no eggs, there's no meat. There's no... This is nonsense. Sometimes the, the cut of meat that you like was not there because some plant was closed for two weeks, for a week. Sometimes there was sometimes some flavor of, of granola was not uh, available. We're living in such an era of plenty that people have to, you know, get real. It worked fabulously well with one, one area that did not work well. PPEs and, you know, some, some medical problem. But this was not a company's failure. This was a government failure. Bill Clinton read a book on pandemics when he was president and started building a national um, inventory of PPEs and other medical supplies. Bush one, Bush, Bush two, increased it substantially. Obama let it wither to almost nothing. And my guess, and I don't even know if uh, you know the latest, you know, if uh, Trump didn't even know it existed. So. Uh, so we got into the pandemic with very low inventory, almost nothing of PPEs. This was a government failure because they recognized that nobody can have it. This is a national problem and didn't have it. Now, some areas can adjust. For example, in my 2005 book on you know, the resilient enterprise, I wrote about the fact that there are not enough ventilators in the United States for a pandemic. Um, there's still not enough ventilator with regard to this pandemic, but the Defense Production Act was, you know, uh, was utilized for Ford and GM and other companies to start making ventilators. And, and the problem was solved relatively quickly uh, all over the world. So it, it means that for certain critical items, you have to keep some inventory until industry can adjust. It's not infinite, it's not years, you have to keep two, three, four months worth of inventory, central inventory, and then the other things you may want hospitals to keep some inventory. So just example, central inventory of, of medical supply should be managed like the uh, strategic petroleum reserve, strategic reserve, my place, first in, first out, you have to work it, and uh, but you cannot use it unless the president says, uh, okay. But also, if you remember after the, um, financial meltdown, banks have to be uh, tested. They have to have enough money reserves. 
guess what? Why don't we have hospitals that have to keep enough reserves of PPE for a few weeks, for a month, until the national system can start supplying them? So we can do it. Uh, and there are actually groups in the government who are thinking about uh, along this line, but it's not only this. There are some other uh, semiconductor, for example, others that are critical to US, like a question of national security that uh, we need to, to keep inventory or do them here. Sure. I, uh, what you say makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, we stock up on uh, uh, perishables if we know storms coming here in Boston. So uh, we, we know how to weather storms. Uh, it's, it's in our blood here. Um, uh, so I want to pin you down on, on what I hope uh, we'll, we'll talk about some sort of uh, failure here. There must be something going wrong. We've got a uh, 100 ships, large cargo ships. These are enormous ships, each of which I think I, I've read that each has 10,000 containers on and those uh, containers have 20,000. What? Up to 20,000. 20,000. Each of those has 10,000 kilos of product in it, right? So, something of that. I, I, I'm probably getting my numbers it's wrong. It's a lot. Yes. But it's a, it's a lot. Uh, and there's 100 of them uh, where there had been zero off the coast of Los Angeles. Lots of products. Uh, we can uh, imagine their uh, toys for Christmas or, or whatever we want to imagine in those, tr- uh, in those containers. But, but we need them. Uh, and they're not getting to where they need to go. Uh, explain for our listeners, why is this happening uh, you know, 19 months into the pandemic? Okay, a lot of it has nothing to do with the pandemic. A lot of it has to do with the government. A lot of it has to do with a huge increase in demand for products, any product, toys, cars, uh, you know, wooden, you know, IKEA furniture, whatever. What happened? During the pandemic, a lot of people got money. Some people who worked from home did okay. Some people who were not work from home a so lower level of income got a lot of government help. They could not spend it. They could not go to a movie. They could not go to a gym. They could not go anywhere. So money kept growing in their pocket. And the money kept, the money kept coming in with all kinds of unemployment. Some of them didn't have to pay rent. So people were flush with money. So once the floodgates opened at the beginning of this year, second quarter really started flowing, uh, they started ordering and buying. Well, guess what? The capacity of the manufacturing, of the port, of the trucks, of the warehouse, of everybody is just not enough. On top of it, people, because many of them had money, or for various other reasons, decided to change their attitude on work-life balance, decided not to work, not to come to work. We have, you know, it's amazing in the United States, you realize that we have almost 40 people of the population is not working. It's not engaged in any work as far as the government knows. Uh, 40 people, 40% of the United, I think it's 61% now, the uh, percent of the workforce that's, that's employed. So we don't have workers. So not enough truck drivers, there are not enough uh, people to, to unload the port. So the capacity of the port of, of, of the, everything, the port, the transportation, the warehouse, everything uh, goes down. In uh, Southern California, the uh, vacancy rate, the warehouse vacancy rate is less than 2%, which means basically there's no space. Um, the ports are doing everything that they can. The port of Los Angeles in September, let me give you the good news, had the largest amount of, the largest number of containers processed ever since the port started. Ever the largest amount, the largest number of, of containers. It's still not enough, because once it takes the the uh, uh, 
the containers out of the ship, you don't have enough chassis, you don't have enough truck, you don't have enough rail cars. So you have a, you know, bottlenecks, rolling bottlenecks along the supply chain. And this is not going to be solved quickly. It's going to be solved. And by the way, I expect it, you know, Niels Bohr said that it's very hard to predict, especially the future. But <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to predict the future. So I'll say around mid, end of second quarter next year, the shortages will, will dissipate. Prices will still be high. Inflation is going, I believe, will keep going. Prices will still be high, but we're not going to have shortages with one proviso. If the government will pull in the trillions of dollars that they're talking about and, and get it on the market, it will go up again. So I so the shortages will continue if we'll have the, I don't know how to call it, the Bernie Sanders economy or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so if, we, we don't have we, we don't need to talk politics just just now, but I just want to make sure I understand uh, what your assertion about. No, the, no, no, uh, no, no, no. Wait a minute. It's not, absolutely not politics. Mm-hmm. I'm absolutely apolitical. I understand that the United mm-hmm. States infrastructure is decrepit. I travel all over the world. I understand that uh, there are people who need help. But what I'm what I'm praying for is that all this money will be much more directed. Will go to places that really need them. Will go to household that really cannot work for a variety of reasons and not just spread it out to everybody because that's the current plan. Uh, the current plan is up to people who make $200,000 can still get paid. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, it's, yeah, when, when there's uh, trillions involved, that's, I, I like to tell my friends, it's 16 zeros. It's, you know, thousand billion dollars. It's hard to make that very directed. It seems like a, a very blunt a large number. It's a blunt instrument, but it has unexpected consequences. And sure. I'm talking just from supply chain point of view, it has to be very directed. Sure. So I want to make sure I understand. It's 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 your assertion, our observation that uh, those tankers or those um, uh, shipping, um, those large container ships are out there because they're responding to a, a spike in demand driven by a lot of people not being able to consume for a long period of time. So, so that without that a spike in demand, uh, it, there's, there's nothing wrong with the port. There's nothing wrong with the trucks. Uh, it's just- No, 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 no. no. You're, you're thinking that there's a lot wrong with the ports, a lot wrong with the trucks, a lot <laughs> okay. wrong with the- right, Well, let's, uh, then let's talk about that. Uh, what you see, uh, as you mentioned, crumbling infrastructure or that uh, the ports, I mean, I've, I've seen data that says our ports are among the worst in the world. Um, they and are. we and we're here in Boston. We're a port. Um, I want to get to that. Um, let's let's talk about that. Why uh, why aren't we more um, uh, resilient, more flexible? Why can't we respond more quickly to uh, spikes and set new records every month? Uh, what, what's holding us back? Well, I don't know if you have an opportunity to visit the port of Singapore or Rotterdam or Shanghai, but uh, they're totally automated. We are not automated. We use uh, we are. To say they are le- that we're, we're laggard in terms of technology doesn't even begin to describe it. I mean, I was struck, when was it? About 20 years ago when I wrote my first book. Um, I was sitting in the port of Singapore and seeing trucks that are coming into the port. And they spent 20 seconds at the gate. Within 20 seconds, the, the driver's eyes get, eyes get scanned, the truck number, the container number, everything gets the trucks just go. You go to a port in the United States and there's a line of trucks as long as the eye can see. So 
By the way, truckers today in Miami, several uh, dredge companies, the company will go to the, to the port and get, get the containers out, stop working with the port because they cannot stand the wait times. The wait times are five, six hours. The driver can be on the job, as you know, there are hours of service. Uh, driver can be on the job only for so long. Half of it is taken by waiting in the port. These drivers get paid by the load. So they are not making money. They cannot, cannot make ends meet. So it's a problem compound. One problem is compounding uh, another. And uh, to say that the ports, the, the, we, have, uh, we have driver shortage before the pandemic. Uh, we have, uh, you know, one example. We have some, by the way, the thing that kills me is every, everybody has good intentions and they screw the system up. I'll give you one, one example. The Port of Los Angeles does not allow trucks that are more than five years old to come into the port. Why do they do it? Because of sustainability, emissions. The new truck have much better emissions than the old truck. So only trucks that are five years old. Immediately when they put this rule, they drove all the small operator out of business. Only big operators can remain. But even the big operators don't want to invest now in trucks. Why? Because California said by 2030, all the trucks have to be electric. Electric trucks are not available right now. Nobody makes electric trucks, but they said the rule is there. So companies don't want to invest right now in any trucks because they don't know what, they don't want to get stuck with trucks that they cannot use. Now, I, if I live in Southern California, I would like very much to breathe clean air. I understand. But the government cannot put a rule like this and then not realize that they have to pay the truckers, the small truckers to buy new trucks. They have to help them. They have to help, you know, existing truckers to invest even if, if by 2030, the trucks will be not usable, the government or the Southern, you know, the California um, government has to take this into account. So every, everybody's good intention. It's not that anybody is trying to do something bad, but we work in silos. So we work on environmental problems, not realize that everything is tied to everything in the economy. And I wish we have more classes in system thinking for in all, all parts of government. So people realize that, that you cannot just do something and have no, and not realize about all the other consequences. Oh, I agree with you. I have a, you know, my background is in engineering, but I'm sort of a free market uh, oriented uh, economist, amateur economist, and there's a natural conflict there uh, between um, uh, a top-down design system and a bottom-up uh, organic spontaneous order. Do you, do you recognize that in your system analysis? Do you say, look, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the muddy path uh, theory of, of the world, which is uh, uh, look what people are doing and, and try to codify or, or, or get out of their way rather than try to imagine a perfect order and impose it uh, from above. Look, it's, a combi- it, it's really a combination because look, talk about the legal system. If we don't agree with the sanctity of the legal system of laws, of contracts, for example, then it's very hard to run a supply chain. It's all based on contract. There's buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell along the supply chain. And they all have to believe that the contract is binding. Because, you know, 
a supplier will start, based on an order, will start buying material, buying stuff, believing that they'll get paid. They'll, they'll be able, somebody will buy it and they'll get paid. So, of, and, and the law is the ultimate, you know, system from above. Um, so you, you need some of this, of course. You need, you need standards. You know, when you, when you get into your, your Zoom and I get into one, my Zoom, we can talk to each other. Uh, when I go to everywhere, everywhere in the world, I can use my laptop because the you know, Wi-Fi works. It's a standard. So there are things that are standards. Actually, standards create flexibility. Some, uh, the ability to um, go everywhere and use your phone, your laptop. Uh, and there are many examples like this. Yet, yet, at the same time, the fact the, the the free market allocate resources the best, so you have you know what you want to do, what you want to buy. We had a big experiment with the Soviet Union when the government decided how much meat, how much this, how much this, and nobody had anything because the government plan is very hard to decide. It's again, it's not that they were bad. Well, in this case, they were bad, but <laughs> but by and large, they're trying to do the right thing. It's just impossible. Impossible to decide from above how to allocate resources. So the, you know, the current system is actually a very good. The, the invisible hand is not a bad system. It works. All right, three cheers for Adam Smith. Um, so let's <laughs> let's 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 move on to um, uh, a really more positive, but or not. I won't say more positive, but but um, a, a book that's filled with awe. Your most recent book that you wrote, uh, I think it just came out this month, "A Shot in the Arm." Uh, and talks about um, really the miracle of what you characterize as the largest product rollout in the history of mankind. You even make comparisons to uh, uh, the moonshot, walking on the moon and saying this vaccine uh, is far more impressive uh, than, than that. Describe to our listeners why uh, you're so much in awe uh, uh, that we now have vaccines. Well, uh, when, when it started, we thought that it will take 10 years. It took less than 10 months. In fact, the amazing thing, you know, the Moderna, Moderna is right behind my office. <laughs> it's, right. Uh, it's right here in Cambridge. Within days after they got the genome from the Chinese, they actually had the vaccine already. They just, all the, they need to make sure that it can go into the cell and not disintegrate. The cell will not attack it. So they had to put the, all, all kinds of things around it. And then they, they all, Get, get the approval, the FDA approval, the phase one, phase two, phase three uh, trials and, and all this. But at the end, it took 10 months, which is amazing to me. And then the challenge. It's not only they have to develop something that was not done ever before. They had to, now the challenge is to give it to billions of people, billions and billions and billions of people. Uh, what are the products? You can think about getting, needed to get it to billions of people anywhere in the world because it, it's a global problem. It has to be solved globally. It's not enough to vaccinate the United States or Europe. We have to vaccinate the world. So now we're in the process of trying to vaccinate the world. Whether it's COVAX or a lot of other organizations try to bring uh, vaccines to countries that cannot afford them, but uh, trying to do it. We're in, in the process of doing it. I compare it to the moonshot, and I said not to minimize the, wound, uh, the moonshot, but they basically had 
no, almost uh, you know, unfathomable amount of money. One, money was not an issue. They had uh, uh, they had one goal. I mean, very well defined goal. All the people who were going to be they were not they didn't have to convince people to go on the uh, on the rocket. People wanted to go. The astronauts wanted to go on the rocket. So it, it, in many ways, it was easier. Um, here, we have to convince a lot of people that they should get it because <laughs> a lot of things that we should, uh, we should do, which is, which is difficult, again, because humans are involved and we are a complex bunch. So, so, so it seems to me this is sort of the opposite of a um, uh, supply chain management task. Rather, it's, it's sort of suddenly the entire world had a demand for a product uh, and there was no global supply chain of vaccines. Uh, now we're, I guess, 19 months from the discovery of this uh, dreaded uh, virus. Uh, we have vaccines. They are being distributed. What are we learning? And um, it, it, is the lesson going to be more that how do we harness existing uh, systems to distribute vaccines? Or uh, would you, the wisdom of, of the last 19 months suggest we're better off designing a whole new system whereby um, it, it sits waiting in the wings uh, and uh, for the next inevitable uh, uh, global pandemic? Okay, so several answers and try to keep it. I have 12 o'clock and not there. So I try to keep it. But uh, I don't believe in design a whole new, it's, it's, it's not realistic. There'll be some movement, a government supported movement of, uh, you know, some medical supplies and semiconductors. Government will invest in, uh, in reassuring them, but that's not a fundamental change. There'll be some, some movement on the periphery. I think the biggest lesson is the fact that, the, that's why the subtitle of my book is uh, it's called The Shot in the Arm, how science, engineering, and supply chains um, collaborated to vaccinate the world. Because to me, that's the big lesson. How, and should include government really, how government, private sector, Every you know, science, engineering, supply chain, all work together basically, and with a lot of money from the government. And Trump should get all the credit for the warp speed project. I mean, they threw money at, at company. Not every company took it. Uh, Pfizer did not take money, uh, so they invested two billion dollars of their own. Many other companies did not take money, but some did. It doesn't matter. The, the hopeful message for me is when the world gets together, we can solve amazing problems. We can solve global warming. If we try to, if we stop the nonsense and try to stop thinking about putting plastic straw, getting rid of plastic straw, or getting, you know, doing things on the margin, even electric vehicles are not going to solve the problem, not even close if you look at the numbers. What we need is technological solutions. And the technology, we solve the global pandemic with technological solutions, with vaccines and our pharmaceutical. And we, have, we had the first wave of solution for global warming, which was renewables. But renewables are limited. There's only so much that we can do, it, can do it. We need the process which exists in the lab of carbon capture and sequestration, taking the carbon that's already in the air and taking it out. Nothing is going to work otherwise because even if the entire population, which, by the way, at least 40% of the population in the United States don't believe in global warming, 
uh, because these are the population that don't want to get vaccinated. <laughs> they also don't believe in global warming. Uh, so can't convince them. Not and, and try to convince them to pay more for a sustainable product or fly less or drive less. It's not going to work. People are not willing to reduce their life. Not here, not in Europe. France, Paris was burning when the government tried to put a carbon tax. It's just not happening. So what we have to have, develop the next generation of technology to take carbon out from the air. Because two thirds of humanities are living there less than $5 a day. They want air conditioning and car and, and they want to eat meat and they want uh, you know, concrete houses. All the things that require, that emit a lot of CO2s and other greenhouse gases. What are we gonna tell them? No, we got it. You guys stay in your tent. It's immoral. It, it's really, we, we can't do it. And by the way, it's not gonna work. It will create a huge wave of migration and many other problems. So the solution is the government to come together and instead of talking about, I don't want to call it, instead of talking nonsense, instead of trying to reduce people's standard of living, instead of getting young Swedish teenagers to talk <laughs> to the world about how bad everything is, invest in technological in technologies that can reduce the carbon already in the air. And I, if, they, if we could come together and invest trillion, trillions of dollars, not billions, trillions of dollars in helping the economy, in helping uh, you know, companies, in, in helping everyone. If we really believe, as Biden says he believes, as, as you know, Ocasio-Cortez, whatever, if we really believe that this is existential threat, let's treat it as an existential threat. And let's find a technology to take carbon out of the air. And then we don't care that so many people don't believe in it. We, can, we don't try to convince them. We don't try to reduce people, you know, standard of, standard of living. Anyway, so you ask a short question, I gave you a long answer. <laughs> and we're running over. I just, um, I appreciate that. It's, it's interesting. I, I think the thesis, the through line there is we've come together to find this extraordinary vaccine and distribute it to the world. We can use the same wisdom and, and, and yes. technique to solve uh, global warming. Sounds like a whole new episode of a podcast. I hope you'll uh, perhaps rejoin me uh, in the future uh, and, and talk about the subject of your, obviously your new book about how to, how to come together to solve global warming. Uh, but before we end, I, I want to make sure our listeners know where they can find you, where they can buy your books. Uh, maybe they can even apply for your graduate program. I understand you were just ranked number one in the world for supply chain management. Congratulations. Uh, how can we find you? Well, first of all, not just the fifth year in a row, but it's Plenty of bragging is welcome here on, on Hubble. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so yes, uh, books are available on Amazon, on Google, on uh, you know Apple, uh, all of this on Everywhere you can have the ebook from Amazon, you can get the physical book. Uh, and the book are available right now as we speak. Wonderful. Just, just look under my name, Yossi Sheffi. You'll find all my books, many translated to dozens of languages, but look for the English version. So <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, most of our audience prefers English, uh, English written books. So, well, thank you very much uh, for your time. We've, we went a little bit long. I'm sorry, but I appreciate your, your time with us. Um, and uh, uh, thanks for being on Hubwonk. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Sheffi. Joe, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate this, uh, this opportunity. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Hubwonk 
a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there's several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on iTunes. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be helpful if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We are always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Thank you.